0: The Dickheads are presented in color.
1: Alright, thanks Cliff. Uh, thanks. thanks for being a part of the Dickheads podcast.
0: Introduce yourself over okay? here, just so I have it on camera. Okay. Um, my name's uh, Cliff Jones. I, I, I started going by Cliff Jones Jr. because, uh, well, I'm a junior, and uh, I found the dot-com for that, so I thought it was really, really okay. good. But um, my, my background is uh, linguistics, is what I went to school for. Um, so, uh, I used to teach English for a while. I taught in Japan and then I came back and taught in Texas. So. But uh, before that, I was into programming and into art and stuff, and eventually, after teaching for a while, I came back to coding again because basically that's what pays.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for being a part of the Dickheads Podcast. We do appreciate it. And um, tell me a little bit about how you got involved with the festival.
0: the festival? Well, I went to the, the first one here um, about two and a half years ago. I. I think I just found it online, you know. And then I came here and I, I met a lot of people. I kind of got in touch with, uh, with Tessa and with Cameron and Mitchell. And um, I really just kind of took it upon myself to come out here. Um, it was, uh, my wife encouraged me to go ahead and buy the tickets and stuff. And then uh, once we already had that set up, then we found out we are going to have a baby. And so if I hadn't done it in advance, I might have been like, you know, <laughs> not doing it. So okay. it worked out.
1: And uh, what kind of resonates with you about work?
0: Well, uh, a lot, and it's hard to put it's hard to put my finger on it, but I really only came to Philip K. Dick um, a few years back, probably uh, you know like six or seven years ago, and I just I kind of stumbled on like I'd heard of you know androids, uh, and I you know I just heard a little bit about it, but uh, then I saw a documentary on Netflix, and it was just saying. Uh, things about his life and hearing things he said, and it's just his worldview, his Weltanschauung, uh, because mm-hmm. he likes to throw that word out. So there's a lot of Phil K. Dick type words that I just learned from him, basically, like Erzatz and Weltanschauung. But uh, how he sees the world and what he sees as important in people and what he sees as a negative, like like the enemy, the thing to resist, you know, and also the fact that you should resist. That, that really gets me a lot, that, um, that even if you're not going to win the fight, you need to fight, you know. So I think um, I'm maybe going to misquote it, but uh, one of my favorite things he said is just because something bears the aspect of the inevitable doesn't mean you should uh, go willingly along with it. Even if you can't win it, you you still need to fight.
1: You mentioned earlier before we we started rolling butt, uh, a little bit about dreampunk. Can you mm. talk about
0: that? Okay, dreampunk is sort of uh, a label for the sort of fiction that I found myself writing when I really got into it, and I, I tried to follow. I wasn't. Following in the same vein as Philip K. Dick initially, I didn't really think so. Like, I was inspired by him a lot, but I was writing more, like, fantasy-type stuff. But I gradually, it gradually kind of dovetailed into, it, there's a lot of overlap between sci-fi and fantasy and, this. and um And when I was trying to find a label for what exactly it is that I write about, um, one of the things that came on was uh, Slipstream, and I thought that fit pretty well as just, like, a weird, weird kind of genre, because I've always wanted to write stuff that's just Mind-bendingly weird, and takes you to some uncomfortable place, and hopefully changes your view of everything around you, and you can see how how really strange everything around you actually is. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's not just take it for granted as a, as a given. You know, because that can actually be really dangerous. Because so many things are not only just strange, but they're they're wrong. You know, they're dangerous and wrong. And we need to re-examine them. Um, so uh, Dream Punk was another label that I came on uh, just while I was posting my stories online and. I was actually asked by uh, an interviewer who was going to um, interview me in English and then translate it into Italian uh, for for some reason. I, I, he was interested in uh, what I thought about dream punk, like what dream punk is as a genre. And so um, we did the interview. And um, once I'd gone to all that trouble of, of researching and figuring out what it, what I was really talking about when I was talking about dream punk, um, I wound up you know making it my own thing, putting it on my website, and uh, finding different writers that I thought really fit. And i um, trying to interview as many of them as I could. And uh, it's really taken off. There's lots of uh, indie writers, especially right now, that are really using the term and kind of promoting it. And there's other writers like uh, like Jeff Noon I was able to interview, and Rudy Rucker, that, that I think are really good examples of the genre, even if they weren't exactly using the term themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Are there any of Dick's novels or short stories that really resonated with you, though? Any ones that particularly stand out, stand out to you and you think, this is kind of the story for me? Okay,
0: yeah, um it's a really tough one. I knew you were going to ask that kind of thing too. The, the first novel that I read by him uh, was actually you know, w- when I was interested. I decided I was interested in this guy because I knew about his life. I knew about his view and everything. And my wife was my wife helps me out so much and finds so much and points me at things. But she uh, found uh, Dr. Blood Money and she said, I think you'll like this one. And I just read it without even knowing what it was about. And that one for me, that was my first novel. And I really got into it. I really got into especially the you know, post-apocalyptic, uh, nice time they were having out in the woods, collecting mushrooms and stuff. You know, because it's like it's not just like, oh, the world's blown up and we're all just in the city suffering. It's like, well, obviously we're going to move into nature a little bit more, and we're still going to get by because that's the the second part of the title, or uh, how we got along after the bomb, I believe. Um, also, I mean, there, there's there's lots of them, but uh, just on the on the drive over here, one of the ones I heard again, a short story was uh, "Upon the Dull Earth." And that one for me is just really, really touching, but also really mind-bogglingly like it opens your mind up to, you know, cosmic horror kind of stuff Mm -hmm. because there's, there's a creatures, you know, creatures that are sort of like angels, they basically call them angels, but the thing is that there are other levels above them. There's, there keeps being other levels. Nobody knows how high it goes and it's pretty horrific because the, the level above you, it may be benevolent, but it's also extremely more powerful than you and it may not care that much about you. And so... It may not want to squash you like a bug, but it might do it anyway, mm-hmm. you know. So I have that feeling, I, I read it, that, that gets me. Tell us
1: a little bit about your own work, specifically. Okay.
0: Well, um, my own work, I've, I've started a lot of stories, and I didn't really complete a lot of things early on in my my writing uh, hobby, I guess. Uh, and then when I finally started working on something seriously, and I said, this is going to be a novel, and I'm going to complete it, uh, what that's called is uh, Adelaide and Osgard. It's sort of like a... a I hesitate to say retelling. It pulls in elements from *The Wizard of Oz*, uh, *Alice in Wonderland*, *Peter Pan*, uh, Norse mythology, actually different mythologies like uh, Egyptian, Mesopotamian. So it pulls in a lot of things. Actually, the further along you go, the more sources it kind of pulls from. So, um, but that one, though, what drew me to *Wizard of Oz* in particular, um, and you know, I love the characters in *Alice in Wonderland* more than the story exactly because it's, I don't know. Um, but uh, but I love Oz, and uh, the thing that I really liked about that was. Um, the three main companion characters. Uh, what I really took away from the, that book, *Wizard of Oz*, that I read to my uh, baby so many times—my <laughs> first, my first, uh, first girl—we um, got that for her when she was still in the womb. I read to her still in the womb, and then I read to her a bunch more. And what I really got into it was the idea that um, these characters—they have these strong, you know, weaknesses. You know, and it, like the the Scarecrow has no brain, and he, but the thing is, he knows he doesn't have a brain, and so he is particularly careful you know, to to really think about things. And the Tin tin Woodman, especially for me, he knows he has no heart, so he takes particular care with everything, you know? So it's like you you recognize your own weakness and uh, you take extra special care to sort of counterbalance it. Like the, you know, the the cowardly lion is cowardly, so he's always blustering and trying to scare things, you know, because inside he's scared, but he's acting like he's really brave, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's that kind of thing. Uh, For me, um, it really resonated, especially... Uh, We're coming back to the empathy thing. (laughs) I know that's a that's a major thing with Philip K. Dick. That Mm -hmm. the um like I'll just say that my brother, my younger brother, is uh, autistic and uh, with severe language impairment. So I grew up with him. Uh, I mean, you know, autism means lots of things to different people. It's a sliding scale kind of thing, but anyway, it's very complicated. But uh, growing up with him, though, I mean, I felt like he was always in his own world, and people couldn't see it. People didn't know what's going on with him you know like i didn't know that well what's going on with him but people see him on the street and they make all kind of wrong guesses about what's happening um and in, it,
1: and so have you read Martian Time Slip yes yes do you, do you feel that dick represented a character who essentially is autistic uh, correct I, not i don't I, know fairly correctly i don't know what the correct wording would be but do you feel like it was accurately represented
0: i feel like he did his best with it i feel for like the time. yeah at the time especially yeah. um the way that uh in the autism in there uh, it could it could very well be offensive to people uh, that with our current understanding of autism, because um, a big thing that people say is you know it's a difference, not a disorder, and it, that's true to a point. You know, if it uh, on the higher end of the autism spectrum disorder, um, where you can get by in your life, and it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things about autism that are just different, and people just need to understand it and make allowances for that sort of thing. On the other hand, if you do have a lot of developmental problems, you know, like you're not able to speak, basically, if you're not able to. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that go along with it, and so he basically cast autism as a as a major villain, like sort of an evil. And um, the way people see it a lot of times, I think, is wrong. And I, that's why I was kind of going to come through about empathy, is that people see autism as like a lack of empathy, like a problem with empathy. And it can kind of be a problem, but not not because people with autism really lack empathy. It's because it might not certain things that you take for granted about about how you. Yeah, imagine yourself in someone else's shoes. That takes more effort, maybe. That might take more effort, but but because it takes more effort, you might actually put more into it. And so a lot of people with autism or with autistic traits, they'll be particularly empathetic. They'll be really, you know, caring. Uh, it's just that, like I tell my wife, like because I have some tendencies toward it myself, um, and it's like, uh, I might not. I'm trying to be thoughtful, I'm trying to think things out in advance, you know, so it's like, if there's something you want me to do, please give me a hint, because I'm all over it. But I may not think of it. I may just, <laughs> you know, and so, and so that's why the Tin Woodman character, I could identify with that a lot. I, sometimes I feel like it's not just, it's, I'm not just naturally having a heart, and so I try really hard, and so it makes me have have a heart, you know, it's a right. it's a weird little paradox. We
1: live in a technologically advanced society, do you think that Dick was very prophetic? about where we are now?
0: Oh, absolutely. I, one thing I think that was unusual about what he was writing, and certainly, you know, the whole cyberpunk aesthetic took it off, uh, you know, took it and ran with it, is the whole, the whole thing about, uh, commercialism and about not being able to trust authority and, uh, the systems that are in place, basically just not trusting any of that because, uh, it's there, it's there to exploit you basically, because it's like, um, everybody, like individuals kind of look out for themselves primarily, you know, they they might have empathy, they might have good relationships, but they do look out for themselves a lot. And it's the same thing with any organization, it's going to look out for its own existence, try to, try to perpetuate itself. And the bigger it gets, the more powerful it gets, the more it looking out for itself can harm a lot of people, and mislead a lot of people. So I feel like there's a lot of things that Phil K. Dick would, a lot of themes and a lot of things he would touch on, that now are almost taken for granted because they're so obvious, you know, but it's like... At the time, yeah,
1: no, I think it was very, very Um, So, final question. If of, You're obviously a fan of Dick's work. Mm-hmm. Are there any stories or novels that you would particularly like
0: to see adapted as a fan? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, well, <laughs> I mean, I think uh, a lot of people would... A lot of people say, like, oh, I hope this never gets adapted because the text is perfect and I don't want to see it ruined on the screen. And I'm not in that camp. I feel like... It, adapt it, and if it's not good, adapt it again. Adapt it. lots of times. You, you know, it just adds to it. It doesn't really take away. You can always read it up. But, uh, one thing I would point to is, is, Ubik. Ubik is considered by a lot of people to be as a, you know, go to masterwork. I mean, well, it depends. It depends what you're looking for. But as far as it's something you can make into a movie, a good, uh, good entertaining movie, uh, Ubik would be great. Um, and, uh, like I was gonna say, Valis, a lot of people consider his as work in a certain ways. And that's, that's a lot more that's only for certain people, basically. <laughs> you already have to love Philip K. Dick in order to love Ballas, I feel like. But um, those would be those would be really great. I mean, like I mentioned Dr. Blood Money, really anything that hasn't been adapted yet, I would love to see that. Awesome. <laughs> where can people find you and find out more about your work? Okay, um, uh, I'm at cliffjonesjr.com is where you can kind of see everything linked together, but if you just search for Dream Punk, I've got a lot of stuff out there about Dream Punk, and, my stuff will hopefully come up. And especially on Facebook, there's a group there that I started for that. So. Awesome. Well,
1: thank you so much for being a part of the defense podcast. You we really it. appreciate it. Thanks.